Aloha and welcome to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Native Stories is pleased to introduce you to Kapena Baptista, a Hawaiian boy born and raised in Los Angeles, California, who decides to find out more about his culture through his thesis research at Harvard on the Hawaiian Room. Aloha mai kako, kapena ko inoa no Los Angeles, ame waianai Hawaii mai au. I currently live in Los Angeles. Uh, it's where I grew up most of my life. Uh, but I get family all over the islands, uh, mostly in Waianae and in Wahiwa, uh, and also in parts of the Big Island as well. Um, but yeah, I work as a producer here in Los Angeles. Uh, I focus mostly on native content and having more native representation within uh, popular media and popular culture. Great. Can you tell our listeners about where you grew up? Right. So uh, more precisely, I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, I was born in Upland, California in the Inland Empire, but I kind of moved around all parts of uh, East Los Angeles. Um, my uh, grandparents are the ones that made the move from Hawaii to uh, California um, for a variety of different reasons. Um, most of them being cost of living, um, but also uh, a series of prejudices that also existed on the islands that uh, they wanted to get away from. Um, but um, I'm Hawaiian through, through, through my father and I'm um, uh, Native American through my mom. And uh, my parents met here in, in Los Angeles, uh, had me. I've been here kind of ever since. I was schooled here. Um, I would occasionally go back to Hawaii to visit, you know, some of my extended family, like my aunties and uncles in and around Wahiwa and Waianae um, and uh, parts of the Big Island and uh, the North Shore as well. Um, I spent quite some time with my uncle um, when I was in high school. So uh, Waianae is kind of like a second home to me. Um, just kind of hung out around there a lot along the beach, <laughs> hanging out with my uncle and my family. It's a really great great place to be um being surrounded by so many different kinds of people and um seeing all these hawaiians and you know it's not really something you get to see a lot of when you're in la <laughs> um so i always love kind of going back there and being around you know my people <laughs> in a way <laughs> uh, specifically in Warnai, what are the places that are special to you that are wahipana to you right so uh two places in particular next next to each other really um i love pokai bay i think it's a great place to be i mean you see the water and then you see the entirety of the waianae valley behind you i think it's a very beautiful place to be and uh right next to it is the kuili aloha halau uh sorry hey hey um and uh right it it was interesting because i remember seeing it for the first time um and kind of wondering what an interesting uh kind of uh landscape uh, it was you know there's no real sign that says this is a heiau right i mean it's just kind of there, kind of de- demarcated a little bit by some of the old stones um but i remember asking my uncle about it and he had told me um about that place and what its significant was uh as a uh, navigational heiau and how the um kahuna would sit there and look at the stars and you know uh pontificate over you know where we're at and uh, continue our tradition of wayfinding. Um, so, right. I think, I think, 
there is a definitely a, a very special place to me. Every time I go back to YNI and always make sure to pay that hey, I'll visit. Um, it's a really good place, very special. Originally, where does your family come from on the Hawaiian side? Uh, my great grandfather, Daniel Kayaka, uh, immigrated from Maui to um, Honolulu to work as a dredger, mostly from Ulupalakua and uh, Kula, Maui. Uh, but also some parts of north and eastern part of the Big Island. So some of the names on the, my my Mo'oku'aoha or Kaihe, Pa'akaula, what else, Kaeka. Fun fact, I've only ever been to the Big Island one time, and I've never been to Maui. So uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely a really interesting experience being a Hawaiian person in the diaspora. Um, it's one that kind of... Uh, how does one say it's, it's an experience that uh, makes one kind of appreciate my time there and, and really kind of view the places that I'm, that I'm at whenever I go there in a different way. Um, Cause I'm not used to it. Right. I mean, it really is kind of like a place that, you know, within my family is, is something that, that is ours and we can claim, but in a way there is a kind of distance with it. Um, and one that, you know, I'm still, you know, trying to negotiate, you know, what my place is as a person who didn't really grow up there, um, what what these places mean to me, right? Um, and, and, and it's a process. I, I think it's a process. I would love to go to Maui sometime. I would love to go to upcountry. I heard it's very beautiful. <laughs> um, and I think it would mean a lot to me if I had the opportunity to go. But um, it's on the list, you know, eventually I'll make it there provided I have enough money to go and make it make the trip. Uh, you spoke earlier about your family facing discrimination. Um, can you mm -hmm. tell us a little mm -hmm. bit more about that? Right. So my tutu uh, was born in 1937. Um, and she remembers uh, seeing the Japanese planes come in and bomb Pearl Harbor. And uh, ever since then, she spoke about how um, there was a kind of anxiety in the islands at, at the time. Um, there was suspicion of everyone who didn't look, you know, white American as being a quote-unquote Jap, right? Um, and she, she would tell me about how in school they would make fun of her because she, she, looks, she looks kind of, you know, someone could mistake her for being of Asian origin, even though she's not. Uh, she's full Hawaiian. <laughs> but... Um, she would uh, be made fun of a lot for um, uh, looking Japanese, right? She would say in school, they would call her, you know, a quote, dirty Jap or something, right? And she didn't like that. She was really bullied, uh, harassed, and even assaulted a couple times. And, oh. you know, that that coupled with the family's kind of uh, struggling financial situation and issues also kind of led the, her family to go and pack up and move to San Francisco, um, where... They had a better living for themselves. My great-grandmother, uh, my tutu's mom, she was a kumuhula. Um, she taught hula in and around uh, the Wahiwa area. Uh, she also taught ukulele. And when she moved to San Francisco, uh, she took that same profession uh, to the Bay Area and taught hula and ukulele there as well. Again, there was a kind of hyper-anxiety around what it meant to be an American and what patriotism meant before, during, and after World War II. Um, and that was something that uh, my 
grandmother really kind of experienced and took to heart in a way whereby she really identified a lot more with being an American than she did with a Hawaiian, right? She didn't want to learn how to speak Hawaiian entirely, even though her mother did. Her mother spoke Hawaiian fluently, but she chose not to learn, right? Kind of infringe on her Americanness in a way. I, you know, she 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 did what what she had to do, and you know, she she's still here. She's still here with us. She's still thriving. So, so great. I think that's but, the case but, for uh, a lot of Hawaiians, uh, especially in that generation where they were basically forced to become American. And mm-hmm. even with like my own mother, she's like that. She, my grandmother spoke Hawaiian, and none of her children um, taught their children. Hawaiian because mm-hmm. of the stigma, and mm-hmm. even the term "naka" was mm-hmm. was a derogatory term during my mom's generation. Right. So I totally understand why your tutu had to do what she had to do in order to survive. Right. You know how do we how do we uh, come to you know acknowledging where you know people um, got these ideologies from, but also how do we like consolidate that in a way. So that we could, you know, work for the benefit of Hawaiian people, you know. Um, big questions, not necessarily easy answers, but stuff that I think as a collective we could all kind of consider a little bit more. That's very, those are very important questions, especially as Hawaiians, one of our major cultural values is respecting our kupuna. But if our kupuna mm-hmm. have certain views that may not be so um, aligned with right, right. Yeah, aligned with our identity as Hawaiians because their identities were stripped, basically. Right. So it's a it's a very interesting question. A very and for some families, very heated topic of discussion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in mine, <laughs> even <laughs> in mine, I mean, it, it's something you know, it's something that we all kind of handle. You know, in in our own ways, you know, and 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 sometimes, sometimes the best the the best way to go about it is, you know, just to just to wait. You know, I think I think the the future generations of Hawaiians lies within our youth, and I think um, as Hawaiians today, we're doing an excellent job at educating our youth in terms of our history and our language and our cultures and our customs. I mean, I think from from my point of view, I think the 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 Hawaiian future is bright. It's a very very bright future, and that makes me really happy. What are some of the misconceptions people have over there in the continental U.S. of Native Hawaiians that you've experienced oh, or you've heard about? My English name is Brandon, and uh, throughout throughout school, even at home, you know, at home they would call me Kapena, they would call me Pena, they would do that. I mean, I always always went my went by my Hawaiian name at home, um, but at school I always went by Brandon. Um, because I knew I would be made fun of, you know, in school if I went by Kapena, right? I mean, and as kids, you know, this is, that's something that really means a lot. You know, you're trying to make friends and, you know, make it and you know, everything is just the biggest deal. Um, right. Cause I knew I'd be made fun of. People would know that I would be Hawaiian. I was a Hawaiian kid. People you would call me things like Hawaiian punch. People called me pineapple. People call me all these, you know, different things about, um, <laughs> what they thought, you know, Hawaiian fit or what they looked like, whatever. I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know why people call me Hawaiian punch. Right. But <laughs> it's still hurt as a, as, a, as a kid. It's still hurt. Um, but right. I think, I think now, 
you know, when even when I when I was doing my uh, my senior honors thesis, um, you know, in in Hawaii, you know, I would tell people, yeah, I'm going to Hawaii. I'm doing my research on on hula and you know, I, I Hawaiian identity. And be like, oh my god, how how like how nice it is for you to be in Hawaii. And I'm just like, you know, I mean, this is exactly what I'm writing about in a way, right? I mean, Hawaii is not all fun and games, right? I mean, I think one of the biggest misconceptions that uh, exists on the mainland about Hawaii is that Hawaii is this paradise, right? Hawaii is this perfect garden of Eden that exists on earth and there are no problems and everyone is great and happy and uh, the environment is pristine and untouched and there are all these things, right? Um, when in reality, that's not the case, right? I mean, there are housing projects in Hawaii, right? There's poverty, there's, you know, environmental degradation, there is uh, the, the, there are so many issues. I mean, that I'm, I'm, I'm losing count in a way. Um, how the government is completely incompetent in you know f- fulfilling the needs of, of of its native inhabitants, right? I mean, Hawaii is just rife with so many problems, and I think all of that kind of gets erased within this kind of imagination of what mainland people think Hawaii is. There's lots and lots of work to be done in Hawaii for sure. So how did you first get interested in researching the hula circuits? Is it because of the hula influence of your tutu or there was something else yeah. that came up? Actually, right. So uh, my, my great-grandmother, uh, we called her Big Nana. Um, she has a wide uh, recording collection, hundreds and hundreds of these tapes, right? This is back in the day when they did tapes, right? Uh, uh, her singing and 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 uh, you know recordings of some of her performances and of her playing the ukulele and um, I I grew up with that I grew up hearing my great grandmother play and um, when when I was born uh, she was the one who named me Kapena um, and you know my my mom always tells me you know that's why I became a musician in a way I studied music at Harvard and my mom always tells me that that was her kind of spirit that was her mana you know of her giving uh, me my name in a way so right i i grew up with that and it it really wasn't until college where you know i realized that i kind of took that for granted i'm like wow like my tutu was a was a badass i mean she she did all these things right she taught she she taught ukulele she taught hula i mean she went all over the place i mean she did all these things and you know i kind of turned back to that um in college and I wanted to write about that. I really kind of wanted to write about, you know, the time that she was alive and what she was doing and what she would have experienced. Right. She was born, uh, Oh God, in, in, in the teens and she didn't die until, uh, the, the, nineties. Right. So she lived a very long and fruitful life of, and, and really lived through a very unique part of Hawaiian history. And that was definitely something that I wanted to write about and think a little bit more about because, uh, she lived through a time of, of Hawaiianness, of building Hawaiian identity that, you know, kind of I am continuing in a way. There are more Hawaiians living in the continental United States than actually in Hawaii. And I think that's a population of people that even local Hawaiians in Hawaii don't necessarily think about too often. There seems to be this kind of uh, emphasis on being Native means being local. So I was really interested to see how Hawaiian identity becomes you know, altered, preserved, translated out of Hawaii and into the mainland, right? Both by people themselves, right? What are how are people individually manifesting their Hawaiian identity on the mainland? But also like what are the 
material and immaterial things, right? Like hula, for example. How was hula translated on the mainland, right? And as I found in a lot of my research, it was very different um, on the mainland when you're performing hula to a mainland audience. A lot of them are very unfamiliar with Hawaii, right? Um, you can't do these really complicated, you know, hula noho or, you know, mele mai or whatever, right? People just don't understand these things, right? They're kind of want to, they kind of want to see Hawaii in the sense that, you know, they imagine it in a way, right? This imagined paradise, like we had mentioned before, right? That's the kind of hula they want to see to like give more structure to that imagination in a way, right? Um, kind of like their image of um, Hawaii through films like Blue Hawaii. Right, right, or uh, Song of the Islands, or yes. um, uh, there was a uh, there was a film I, I had briefly written about about uh, this uh, fictional Hawaiian woman who gets like sacrificed to a volcano or something like that. Something really quite absurd, right? But uh, these are the things that people really wanted to see at the time, right? I mean, someone sees Hawaii and it's kind of like this word association game, right? Like palm trees, hula girls, volcanoes, right? Like, I mean, people just wanted to see these things and um, some things were really more ridiculous, but other things, you know, tried to make a really good effort um, in terms of preserving a unique real Hawaiian quality to it, if one can call it that. You know, there's a certain extent where playfulness can lead into a little dangerous territory, right? I mean, one of the things that i written about in my thesis was um, the idea that what is, what is left out of a performance is just as important as what is put into it, right? They're not going to talk about how hula was almost banned in the 1800s by missionaries, right? The, there isn't going to be a conversation of its suppression, right? There isn't going to be any conversation about, you know, uh, the, 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 the overthrow of the government, right? And like how that affected, you know, our arts and our craft and our long traditions, right? I mean, again, people are just there to, you know, look at uh, women, women, right? Because this is a very gendered activity on the mainland, you know, dance hula and, you know, shake their hips, you know, emphasis on the hips, right? In 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 a way that kind of serves their imagination, right? And that pe people come in with them with the with the conception of what hula is, and people come out not necessarily having that conception changed um, in many situations. But that's kind of speaking a little bit more generally on how hula circuits kind of exist here today. So, what are your academic interests, and how did you get involved with? researching hula. Right. So um, I graduated from Harvard University in 2016. Uh, I'm a 2017 Fulbright scholar. I lived in Portugal. Um, my Hawaiian side of the family is also Hawaiian Portuguese. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and I majored in music and anthropology um, at Harvard. I had to do a double major with the two because uh, the field of ethnomusicology, which is really what that is, um, was uh, a field of study for graduate students only. So <laughs> as a little undergrad trying to get into the field of ethnomusicology, that was really the best that I can do. But um, right, I was always really fascinated with hula because of my great-grandmother. Um, we come from a hula family, actually. Um, 
halal hula olana shares the same hula lineage as I do, which is really great through our my great great grandmother, my great grandmother's mother, Amy Kale Kolana Kaihe from Maui, uh, who was trained in hula kapu. Right. So I, I've I've always been kind of interested in my genealogy in that sense and. That coupled with the fact that I am a Hawaiian of the diaspora and my great-grandmother was involved in the circuit, I wanted to research how Hawaiian identity is translated on the mainland through the medium of hula. And that kind of inevitably brought me to studying the Hawaiian room. I, I, I remember vividly, very vividly, how I came across uh, the, the Hawaiian room. And it was my junior year. I saw a advertisement on Facebook about how there was a gathering of Hawaiians um, in New York City. And New York City is just a short four-hour bus ride away from Boston. So I hopped on the bus. I went down there, and I met all the phenomenal entities that I ended up working with. And it was, it was really great because I, I remember introducing myself. I'm like, hi, I'm Capenna. I went to Harvard and, uh, or I, I, I go to Harvard and, and, and the very moment I said I went to Harvard, it just blew up in this, you know, ecstatic, you know, oh my goodness, we have a Hawaiian at Harvard. Jesus is great. <laughs> uh, you know, we were, we're in high places, right? Everyone was really excited to know more about me. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm here to know more about you. <laughs> uh, but it, 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 was, it was great. I think it's really important for anyone, any anthropologist or any kind of any person doing ethnographic work to uh, build mutual rapport and respect with the people that, 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 you're, that you're working with. So it was nice. I mean, I, I got to know all of them. And, I mean, I told them what my project was and they were all really excited to work with me and um, this was in the winter, the winter of 2014, and then the following summer, summer of 2015, I uh, was able to do my research in Hawaii, working with the Hula Preservation Society, who had just produced a documentary on the Hawaiian Room with uh, a local filmmaker, um, and I was able to have access to all that interview footage and and all the materials, the physical materials that existed at HPS at the time, and was able to produce my thesis. And my thesis, the, the crux of my thesis was, was looking at the Hawaiian room and kind of pontificating over uh, Hawaiian identity and and um, what it meant to be performing Hawaiian hula on the mainland during the, the particular time of the Hawaiian room, which existed between the 1930s and the 1960s. Um, and right and 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 uh it was it was a it was a very challenging project i mean i can't even count the amount of man hours i put into into writing this paper um and and the amount of time i spent with all the aunties and getting to know them and hearing beautiful stories tragic stories and you know stories that really made me you know understand what it meant to be Hawaiian a little bit more. Can you give a general timeline of when the hula circuits began and sort of genealogy of the hula circuits? The hula circuit on the mainland really has a very, very long history. Uh, some would be really surprised to hear that it goes actually back to the time of Kalakaua. Um, and there were hula emissaries that were being sent kind of all around the world. I mean, all to, to the United States, to Europe. Uh, hula was kind of like one of the very first exports, you know, of the Hawaiian kingdom to uh, present Hawaiian culture to, to, to different places. And what was a really big turning point in that was 
the overthrow, obviously, and I'm, I'm sure many of the listeners are quite familiar with it. But you know, to, to recap, right, the Hawaiian government was overthrown in 1893 um, and annexed by the United States in 1898 by President McKinley. Given given that 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 history, at the time, uh, the annexation of Hawaii was quite a contentious political issue in the United States. Queen Vimeokalani uh, famously appealed to Grover Cleveland to ask the provisional government to give Hawaii back to Hawaiians, right? And of course, he had left office in 1897, and McKinley took office, and being the staunch imperialist that he was, was not going to give the islands back, right? So this isn't, you know, this isn't a story that's, you know, kind of unique and, and relegated to Hawaii as a niche, right? That whole country knew this was happening, right? At the time, this is really kind of the first time most of the country is hearing about Hawaii, right? And at the time when, instead of thinking, like now when we associate Hawaii with beach and paradise, at the time they thought of Hawaii as you know, colonial type government that was previously run by a bunch of savages, right? This wasn't a sexy place to be. This was, you know, a place where, quite honestly, you didn't want to go. Was a politically unstable island nation that the United States was going to civilize, right? You know, Hawaii was was, was annexed, you know, to kind of serve uh, primarily American military interests in the Spanish American War, but the Spanish American War wasn't that long. It really only lasted, you know, a little over three months, I believe, and it you know, ended uh, with the Treaty of Paris in uh, 1898, I believe. Obviously, there was a lot of military developments that were happening in Hawaii at the time, and um, there was still quite a lot of agriculture that, that was happening. But the, the territory at the time needed to, you know, rebrand, right? They, they, they had an image crisis of sorts. They didn't want to be associated with this, you know, kind of savage land that a lot of people associated Hawaii being with at the time. Uh, really, really interestingly, they turned to none other than uh, Mark Twain, of all people, right? So uh, Mark Twain visited the islands back in the 1860s, right, and wrote quite prolifically about it. He gave a series of lectures in New York City about his time there and talked about um, there was no other place like it on Earth. And uh, there are reports of his lectures in the New York Times and how his lectures were crowded. There were people, you know, sitting in the aisleways, right, just wanting to hear about his tales and travels of, 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 of Hawaii. And I think, you know, the, the people in the provisional government and the territorial government at the time were actually keen uh, of, of, to knowing about, you know, what Twain was writing and, you know, kind of had this intuition that if they marketed Hawaii as the beautiful place that it is, right, maybe we could rebrand away from this, you know, political conundrum that they had caused, you know, away from the overthrow, away from all these things kind of put that behind them and move forward by presenting Hawaii in all of its beauty, that could be a way for them to go um, and promote a different image of Hawaii, right? So Panama uh, Pacific exhibition occurred in 1915. That was when the territorial government actually sent uh, an envoy of several Hapahali women, very carefully selected Hapahali women, right? Um, to the Panama Pacific ex exhibition to uh, dance hula and serve pineapple, of all things, right? They think the uh, the envoy was actually sponsored by the Hawaii Pineapple Growers Association. At the same time as um, James Dill, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think he might have been involved in in, uh, in the Hawaii Pineapple Growers Association as well. Um, probably was the one providing the pineapple. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
the women there were not, you know, dancing hula kakiko, right? Or even, you know, what we would imagine as being hula awana now. They were dancing hapa haoli, right? They were dancing to songs mostly in English, right? With the occasional spattering of Hawaiian every now and then. But it was it would be considered hapa haoli music in English with a steel guitar and ukulele, a bass, and, you know, a, a regular guitar with, you know, a Western tonal structure and... Uh, the, the idea was to make Hawaii and its cultural exports, you know, understandable to an American audience that knew very little about it. Right? The New York City-based uh, Tin Pan Alley composer group was famous for popularizing ha- the Hapahali genre on a massive scale. Um, they had songs called Yakahula Hikidula, which was meant to imitate the Hawaiian language. Other songs like Ukulele Lady, right? It, you know, these were things that you know hardly resembled Hawaiian, the, the Hawaiian music or, 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 or language that you and I would know. But um, it was wildly successful in promoting Hawaii as a beautiful island paradise. It kind of took that kind of same sentiment that Twain was writing about, translated that into the hula genre, mixed in with Western music, and birthed this thing that we know as hapa haoli, right? Exoticized. It was carefully designed in a way, right? I mean... A hapa Hawaiian women dancing hula. Right. Yeah, exactly, right? People who were light of skin, right? So the territorial government, they had a branch of, of, of the government that was dedicated to promoting tourism. At the time, it was called the Hawaii Promotion Committee. It later became the Hawaii Tourist Bureau in 1918. The, the, their goal was to work with the Matson Company to produce a series of ads, I, look at them now and they're, they're really quite beautiful like beautifully designed posters but at the same time like you look at them and they're kind of you know parodies of themselves in a way they they have you know things on them that say hawaii romantic beautiful you know there's a picture of or there's a drawing of diamond head and waikiki beach and you can see the royal hawaiian hotel which is a hotel that was financed by the matson company in the background right so the messaging is really quite clear and there's a hula girl in the front she's in a grass skirt she's very very light-skinned so the, the whole idea was to appeal to you know a white tourist moneyed audience to go and live like royalty in these islands right um, so that they could be consumed in a certain kind of way. It was the the idea was to export Hawaii in a way that would bring people there, right? Uh, there would be you know quote unquote outposts of Hawaii on the mainland as permanent establishments to the point where there would be several bars um, and clubs that were Hawaiian themed that would pop up all over the mainland, right? So by 1939, there were quite a few Hawaiian entertainment establishments that were located in mostly upscale hotels uh, in L.A. and San Francisco, Chicago, New York, Cleveland, and Baltimore. Arguably the most famous of all of them and the one that got the most uh, notoriety at the time was the Hawaiian room at the Lexington Hotel. In 1937, uh, the Lexington Hotel owner uh, contacted uh, a man by the name of Ray Kinney. At the time, was at the height of his, of his musical career he kind of made a name for himself as a musical ambassador of Hawaii. He toured California in an opera called The Prince of Hawaii, and he served as a band leader in the Palace Hotel in San Francisco performing Hawaiian music. Um, and he had a year-long recording contract with a really famous studio, and he produced you know, all of these like, hundreds of songs right, that, are, that are attributed to his name. So the manager of the Lexington Hotel, this beautiful 
upscale, gilded age type hotel in the middle of New York City, the manager contacted him and said, hey, I want you to come to my hotel and have a permanent show. And he accepted the idea with a lot of enthusiasm and he assembled the band members that included Andy Iona, Lonnie McIntyre, Sam Makia, George Kaniapal, and they assembled a group that he called his Aloha Maids. And he did that by scouting out some of the best hula dancers that he could find on the island. The first initial dancers were Ululani Holtz, uh, Pualani Mossman, who was also known as the Matson Girl because she posed for a lot of advertisements for, for the Matson Steamship Company, Mapuana Basha and uh, Napua Wood. And they kind of began, the hotel kind of began a tradition of sending young Hawaiian women who were trained in hula and male musicians, predominantly male musicians, to perform in New York City. Hawaiians that were, uh, the, the languaging at the time was born and bred in Hawaii. Right. So he wanted he wanted to kind of rebrand Hawaiian music away from this kind of like vaudeville, Tin Pan Alley style of music at the time. I mean, Rikini saw through the ridiculousness that was Yakahula Hikidula and really wanted to advocate for what he called sweet Hawaiian music. Hawaiian music that was still predominantly English, right? Still would be associated with the hapahali genre, but was a little bit less risque, a little bit more, a, a little bit less ridiculous. And he would perform songs like Hanale Moon, for example, or Lovely Hula Hands, stuff like that, right? I mean, things that are a little bit more romantic. He he was there for, for quite some time uh, performing, and he eventually moved away from the Hawaiian Room. But the Hawaiian Room went through several different band leaders at the time. Dancers that came in the mid and later years of the Hawaiian Room didn't come from particularly rich families. In fact, uh, they were the primary breadwinners in some cases of their families and would send home checks back to Hawaii just so that their families could you know, stay afloat and live. That wasn't really something that was discussed in the Hawaiian room, right? Because the dancers that were performing in the Hawaiian room, right, had to be this fictional Hawaiian goddess in a way, right? I mean, one that, you know, embodied the beauty of the islands. There is a great photo of two dancers that uh, just got off the plane in New York City in the middle of the winter, right? And they were asked to exit the plane in a cellophane grass skirt lays real actually real flower lays uh, from hawaii and a bra in the middle of the winter it's freezing temperatures outside and they were asked to exit the plane in, in this attire um no shoes bare feet right and there's a fantastic photo of them greeting their plane uh docker uh with a lay and he's in a parka <laughs> And in gloves and these pants that are insulating him warmly, right? And you can you can tell that he's all warm and they are freezing to death, right? And I thought about, you know, this image. I'm like, why why would they ask these women to exit the plane in freezing temperatures, almost, you know, entirely exposed? And, you know, one of them is actually kind of clutching her arms and shivering in a way. I mean, you can tell I me mean, it's a pretty hilarious photo, but I think I think the the underlying kind of uh, uh, sentiment of it all is that, you know, these are women that were meant to transcend reality, right? These were women that were meant to almost embody the islands, even though they were not there, right? So the idea is, is that they don't need clothes to protect them from 
the cold because the islands did that for them, right? They didn't need shoes to walk on the cold asphalt because wherever their feet landed turned into warm white sand. Um, hula was one of the very few things that we as Hawaiians still have. And it was during these years that these women were carrying that torch, right? And I think it's very fair to say that they didn't let that torch burn out. Don't you find it kind of ironic that while there were these um, outposts, as you put it, of mm. Hawaiian culture, particularly focusing on hula, Hawaiian culture mm. at home was being suppressed because um, right. there were still the hula licensing laws that were still in effect. Right. It, there, there is a certain kind of irony that, you know, Hawaiians on the mainland were you know, almost treated better than, than some of the Hawaiians that existed in Hawaii at the time, right? I mean... <laughs> Uh, there's this kind of mythologizing of Hawaiian bodies, right? Peak racial discrimination, right? Peak. I mean, you know, hundreds of people of color were getting lynched in, in, in the country at the time, right? Um, one of the aunties had told me that uh, they went to a, a bar and um, they were told to go to uh, the colored entrance, right? The colored entrance of the bar. And I guess it, they, the person that told them that found out that they were Hawaiian and they were like, oh, you can come in through the white one, right? <laughs> you can enter through the white one now because we were, they were so fascinated with Hawaiians, right? Hawaiians were this, I mean, they were almost, you know, a, a tre treated as, you know, like, like, like a, a unicorn or, or some kind of mythological animal in a way that inspired inquiry, not hatred. The uh, women that are of the so-called better class, as they would exactly. put it in. 19th and 20th century because they embodied western culture along with some of the better attributes and i'm quoting from uh, stanley portis dr stanley portis mm. and his mm. uh, racial um, notes Go ahead. so basically it was okay to be hawaiian as long as if you could bring in income Exactly, right? When you didn't ruffle any feathers, right? Um, you didn't talk about any of the political issues that were you know, affecting Native Hawaiians and in the multitude of ways that we were being disenfranchised. Um, you know, right. these are the and things that we allowed. Basically controlled by the Big Five, which was about six families, actually. Right, right. And... It, it's also very interesting because um, the way the dancers' appearances in the Hawaiian room were really quite curated, right? They, right, they weren't allowed to be seen in their day-to-day -day clothes, right? They always had to be seen in their costume. They had to constantly be embodying this character of this Hawaiian goddess in a way, right? So that whenever somebody saw them, they would just be so enthralled by their beauty and their talent that... They would then be transported to the mythical island paradise that is Hawaii, right? That's what they were paid to do. Do you see some of the similarities with these hula circuits um, uh, with the Polynesian Review at Disney World, the Polynesian Show at SeaWorld, and the Polynesian Culture Center at, um, in La Ie? Hawaiian circuit shows on the mainland tend to have a structure, right? How does one say? Like, like conflation of hula with the many different types of dances that exist across Polynesia, right? So Tahitian becomes hula, right? Any dance from Samoa, that's hula, right? You know, any kind of, you know, performance from, you know, Aotearoa, 
also hula, right? I mean, there, there, people just begin to, to, uh, complain a lot of these things, um, as, as, as being the same, right? This kind of creates this, this monolith of sorts, this cultural monolith that, you know, obviously does, does, doesn't exist in and of itself, but, um, becomes ex- existent within the space of these, these, these performances, right? So, um, for example, I was, uh, recently in, in, uh, Rapa Nui, um, I went to a to a to a, to a dance performance show, and um, you know they 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 purport you know like what what their history is, and you know how how they legitimize their their, their dances, and and in in a way that kind of uh, reifies the image of what you know the tourist industry wants to have of their home and their island, right? So right, I mean, and and it's weird because they they kind of get this structure from the hula circuits that uh, existed on the mainland, right? And you could totally see that at any show in Waikiki. You can totally see that at any show at the Polynesian Cultural Center. I mean, a lot of, like the idea of, you know, mixing all these dances from all over Polynesia into one show was something that originated on the mainland. The Hawaiian Room was actually one of the first, you know, uh, uh, institutions to perform Tahitian. Um, and it was such a resounding success, right? It's such a moneymaker for the show that, a bunch of other bars and, and, and clubs started to emulate that too inside of their hula circuit shows um, to incorporate Tahitian into it, right? There are there are a lot of, of similarities um, between shows that exist in, in, in the mainland and shows that exist um, in and around Hawaii and other parts of Polynesia. I think also in large part because the shows that were constructed on the mainland um, were constructed solely for the purpose of money. Right. That that was really its its origin. Right. Its origin was that this is something that people want to consume. It's popular. Um, and seeing the amount of money that all these clubs and bars were making, I'd imagine that tourist venues in Hawaii were keen on seeing that. Right. And developing a show beyond a kind of archaeological. Right. This is, you know, the ancient Hawaiian and this is what they did. Rather, you know, these are Hawaiians and this is what they do. And it becomes this, you know, pseudo-sexual, feminized spectacle of sorts, right? So re- really, the, the, the format comes from a more economically-minded structure that was birthed on the mainland, right? As someone who is in the performing arts field, how would you personally define cultural appropriation? And what advice would you give to other people... Uh, who are also in the same field. I I really don't like it in a lot of ways because I think uh, as people who come from marginalized identities, as people who concern ourselves with the well-being of our communities, I think far too many of us use the words cultural appropriation when we really should be using the word racism. Um, I think there's no harm in using the R word in this case (laughs) Um, because oftentimes nine times out of 10, that's really what we mean, right? This, you know, this fashion show at, you know, Victoria's secret of them wearing (laughs) war bonnets, right? That's not appropriative. That's just racist. Right. I mean, um, Mm -hmm. and and I think, I think to use the word cultural appropriation kind of lightens the load in a way. It, It makes, it makes people, you know, more ready to debate <laughs> rather than being like, oh, my God, this is racist. I do not want to be associated with this. Right. I mean, I think 
I think we need to move beyond saying something that's culturally appropriative and more towards saying something that, I mean, this is, this is racist and should not, this should not continue. Right. When someone says you're appropriating my culture, people are like, Oh, well, I mean, I have a, I have a, I have a Hawaiian friend and he thinks it's okay. Right. Or I have um, something like that or, or he, or, or he does this, right. It's like, it, 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 it becomes something less serious when you say cultural appropriation, cultural appropriation. I mean, the words kind of like trigger, I mean, they're, they're, they're triggering the sense that people are very, very quick to delegitimize that. Right. This isn't appropriative. Who are you to be a gatekeeper to your culture? Right. Blah, blah, blah. Or um, I'm trying to appreciate your culture. Right. And it's like, no, you're just being racist, right? I, I think, I think uh, my, my, my advice to people, for people who work in, in, in representation or people who are in activist spaces, I think um, it, it's, it's okay. I, I, I think it's okay to call something out as being racist instead of culturally appropriative, especially if that's what you mean, right? Um, I think... I think uh, it, it involves a certain kind of understanding of what racism is, right? Racism being the combination of a power structure and a racial prejudice of sorts, right? And if the image or the action that you're seeing is something that, you know, is something that is perpetuating the structure of power that dominates this marginalized group of people, it's racist. In a way, would you say that uh, the Disney film Juana is tied into that whole history of um, the hula circuits. Right. There's a, there's a um, stanza in the song, and it says, I met a fat kanaka, and he asked me to his hale. He wore no clothes to speak of, but a pa'u and a papale. Upon a mat cross-legged we sat, and there and then, my boy, I was initiated in the eating of the poi. Right. So there's this, you know, kind of old stereotype of Hawaiian men being fat, right? Um, the character Maui, of course, was just covered in tattoos, which was another, you know, kind of stereotype of Hawaiian men, um, kind of long flowing hair, um, kind of general buffoonery in a way, right? I mean, um, it it comes from that in, in, in a variety of ways. I mean, him as a character, right, I think came from... Um, a, a an, an idea of Hawaiian men at the time, right, as being, you know, fat, dumb, having no clothes, right, barefoot, all, they, all we do is eat, right? I mean, um, that... Basically that, a simpleton. Uh, right, and, and that, that kind of comes from the hyper-effeminization of Hawaiian culture, right? The, the fact that Hawaiian culture was translated into a woman, right, into a hypersexualized woman, right? Mind you, because Hawaiian culture was translated into a woman doesn't necessarily mean it, she's a feminist icon, right? I mean, this woman was meant for sexual conquest, right? This woman was meant to be a servant for, you know, the the, the tourist, you know, that was coming to the island, right? Like, um, so so needs to be exactly, right? How Nani Kate Trask calls this the soft kindness, right? the soft kindness of the Hawaiian woman that is ready to be colonized, right? And I think Moana, in portraying, you know, one of our demigods that way, right, um, fits into that tradition entirely. Um, though I think her character, the character Moana, right, this, you know, strong-willed, you know, ambiguously Polynesian woman, I mean, you don't necessarily know exactly where she's from, even though um, the, the, 
this is Hawaiian, right? I mean, it just kind of represents the monolith, right? The monolith that um, was created within the hula circuits, right? The monolith of Polynesian culture in a way, a woman that apparently all Polynesian women are supposed to identify with, or all Polynesian people are supposed to identify with. Even though we have our own separate, unique, distinct cultures that have thousands of years of developing independently, right? I think I think that's, that's great to have, you know, strong-willed female characters, but we have very distinct cultures and traditions and ways of organizing our society. Where does Moana fit in all that, right? We don't know. <laughs> she wasn't written that way, right? Um, and I think as Native people, you know, the things that are most important to us are our land and where we're from and the things that we could identify as being very distinctly ours and things that have been in our families for countless generations, right? I mean, to have someone that doesn't necessarily have that, right, you know, how, how much can we claim her as being part of us then, right? And I think it's important to kind of see through that farce, right? Uh, and I think it's important to develop characters who would have that kind of connection to us, right? I mean, I don't think Moana is Hawaiian. I don't think Moana is Samoan. I don't think Moana is Maori. I don't think Moana is Tahitian. Um, but I think it's important to have characters like that uh, that are specific to these particular cultures, right? instead of creating us as, as a monolith, right? Um, I think here on the continent, um, there's this uh, idea of Native Americans, right, as being a monolith, right? As, there's, as, as if there's such thing as, quote, Native American culture. There's no such thing as Native American culture. There are Native American cultures, plural, right, uh, <laughs> that, that, have, uh, that exist and have thrived and, have hundreds of different languages, right? But I mean, to make an amalgam of what are hundreds and of, of different people who have hundreds of different histories, right, into a single thing is preposterous, right? I mean, how, how do you do that, right? Um, and the answer is you don't. <laughs> you don't do that, right? And you do these people in honor by accurately and respectively and honorably representing them in the way that they view themselves, right? And uh, Moana fell short of that, in a way. What advice would you give other Kanaka Maoli on the continental United States about how they can better support Hawaiian causes, such as um, the Aloha Poke lawsuit, the TMT, and Hawaiian self-determination in general? I think the most basic thing you can do, and I mean, people have their various criticisms of this, but so social media um, has its benefits in terms of spreading information around, right? So even if you aren't able to go, you know, and, and protect Mauna Kea physically with your body, you can do a lot in the way of, you know, updating the people around you. Um, I think it's important for Native people to share their issues with non-Native people, right? I think that's how we start to build coalitions and build actual movements where people just don't think we're being insular to ourselves, right? Um, I think it's important to build these relationships through empathy and to say, like, th this matters to me because you know, it's, it's my heritage. I mean, this is, this is our, 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 in the case of the TMT, it's our holy site. I mean, the, that's where our ancestors are buried. I mean, this is where our gods reside. I mean, um, there are, 
plenty of reasons that, you know, we could build rapport with people by simply talking to them, right? And whether or not that's through social media, whether or not social media is the best medium is a little bit weird, but I think it's a good, it's a good way to go and at least get, get the word out. But um, what's also really great and something that will always go a long way is to donate. I know in 2015, there was a bail fund uh, for folks that were ar- arrested on the Mauna. Um, there was a there was a crowdfunding campaign that people were taking donations to help get the people that were arrested bailed out. That's great. That's beautiful. And that's practical. And it's direct action. I think anyone can do that, Hawaiian, non-Hawaiian, no matter where you are. Um, you can have a part in any of those movements, right? There was a there was a new, there was a New York Times uh, review of the Mark Twain lectures, um, and I'll actually quote it here. It says, "The visit of whites introduced uh, civilization and education and killed out the natives. The latest reliable information fixes the population at around fifty thousand, and when the benevolent foreigners start a few more seminaries." It is to be hoped that that event will materially help to kill off the remainder of the native population. So the idea was, is that, I mean, people were hoping that we weren't going to exist anymore, right? But we did. And it was through, you know, people that performed in the Hawaiian room or did circuits and brought Hawaii outside of Hawaii, right? Um, For better or for worse, right? That helped us in a way to stay alive. That puts money in our pockets. You know, and, the, and there are plenty of Hawaiian musicians that, you know, recognize how complicated that relationship is between music, uh, Hawaiian music and tourism. And it's something that I think, you know, people who are brought up today, I think, should learn to have a deeper appreciation for that generation, you know, in spite of all of this, you know, mm-hmm. political and what have you. I think that is a very important point as well, that Hawaiian-ness doesn't have to be just one thing. Hawaiian-ness can be several things. Right. Because it can become, in many instances, beautiful things. That's true. And also, only extinct languages remain the same. Same with cultures. Right. And I, I, I think it's important, you know, not to view tradition as this thing that doesn't change. Traditions are always changing and uh, you know, shifting and, 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 and moving. And I think it's always important to be part of the engine that moves it forward, not the brake. For those interested, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook under user page name Our Native Stories. And check out our website and subscribe to our email list at www.nativestories.org. Also, stay tuned for our mobile application coming out on Android and Apple stores soon.